Welcome to The Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. From education to implementation, join us as we explore everything in between. The Creator State. Today's guest, Susan Strait, was born in Riverside and still proudly calls it home. Learning this about her comes as a surprise to many, but for Susan, the best, most powerful stories often begin at home. In our new memoir, In the Country of Women, Susan explores home, the intricacies of family, and the stories of her family's female ancestors. Susan is a distinguished professor of creative writing at UC Riverside, where she has taught since 1988. She has published eight novels, including High Wire Moon, Between Heaven and Here, and A Million Nightingales. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and the National Magazine Award. Join us for an insightful conversation with acclaimed author Susan Strait as we discuss what she calls those who leave and those who stay, writing, life, her love for Riverside, and the inspiring power and resiliency of women. My name is Rekirby Hines. Welcome to The Creator State. I want to begin with just jumping in with a question about your creativity and your creative process. What is your creative process? And I know with writers and authors, a lot of times we get this question and we're hesitant because it, it kind of sounds like one of those setup questions. But I wanted to know, how do you know when that process begins? I think the most fascinating part for me and the reason I feel so fortunate to be a writer, write in three different genres but to live in the place where I've lived my entire life is that it's a never-ending fountain of stories. No, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, someone almost every day tells me this amazing life narrative. And my children find it hilarious. My students find it hilarious. I've been teaching here for 30 years. And what I often tell my students is, I'm just a good listener. And that's true. So for me, the creative process starts with three different things. And I actually just spoke about this to a, a big group of people in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I'll be talking about it again next <laughs> week in Washington, D.C., because people ask a lot, how do you how do you structure something or where does something begin? Yes. Sometimes a novel begins with a particular scene. Like, you know, I've seen a, a pepper tree or I'm going to be honest with you, I took the dog night before last on a two-mile walk because all of the eucalyptus trees on the corner of Harupa and Brockton, the bark exploded in huge, long, five-foot shards of white, pearly white skin. And that was because we had a wet spring and then it was 108. Sometimes I'll start with that particular scene, like the day that the bark exploded on the eucalyptus trees and flew so high that the roofs were covered with white chips and it looked like it snowed, but it was 108 degrees. That might be one short story that I begin. Uh, another way to begin is often that someone sits in the dark in a driveway and tells me someone else's life story or her own life story. And that was actually the genesis for my new book is 30 years of women telling me life stories about, you know, how did this person come to California and why did this person run away from the man she was married to? Why was he so scary? that she never told her daughters his name. And that was my mother-in-law's father. Wow. She never knew her father's name because 
her mother, Daisy Carter, refused to tell all four daughters the names of their fathers. And that, that was just, I needed to write a book about that. Wow. So I don't even want to get to that yet. I want to go to the bark exploding on the eucalyptus tree. And <laughs> um, how, does, how does something like that trigger uh, these amazing stories? I, I mean, you know, someone else may see the bark exploding and they go, oh, well, the bark exploded on that tree. But how does that, coupled with space, you know, w- where you are, uh, generate these these really amazing stories? I think that people like me, who are writers, are born with this strange way of looking at the world where it's not as easy to say as we use our imagination. It's much more to say that as we walk through the world and we see something like the eucalyptus tree, instead of saying what some people say is, what a mess, now I have to clean up all this bark, or wow, that's really weird, you know, why would it do that? What I do is I look at it, I see the, the, the texture and the color of the white, I immediately thought of the time that my oldest daughter and I went to collect bark from a eucalyptus tree when she was in the fourth grade, and you do the Native American module in yeah. California fourth grade, and we went up Mount Rubidoux and got cochineal bugs that I knew were on the Opuntia cactus, the nopales, and she painted on the eucalyptus bark designs. And so all of that past, present, everything melds together as I see the tree because that's the way my brain works. And so what I see is always narrative as well as detail. Like how did that bark look and how did that happen? And how, how, what's the story of why it took this particular weather on this particular day? And I've lived here my whole life and never seen it explode. So for me, it's always the story. I want to talk about a little bit about how your presence in this space for the time that you have, the amount of time that you have been in this space, continues to be an inspiration for your work. Uh, you know, sometimes authors go away to, to, to work on things. They will they'll kind of isolate themselves. But it seems like you being present in this community is such a huge part of uh, the work that you create, it's such a huge part of um, how you exist both as a person and as an author and as an educator. Can you talk a little bit about just you being present in this community and what that means to you? This is a fascinating thing I've been obsessed with. I'd say for the last six months, it's something I've thought about every single day. Because when you have a new book coming out and you talk to a lot of strangers, people say to you in an interview, wait a minute, you live a mile from where you were born? Wait a minute, you've lived in this place, Riverside, California, your whole life? And I was picking apricots off my tree, which is probably 80 years old, and I was going to take them to my friend George Barbarian, who works at Bob's Auto, who immigrated here from Armenia, and his father and grandfather told him the story of how they crossed the land in Turkey and ended up in Armenia. And I thought, how is it that America values mobility so much? You know, our American stories are all about, well, I left and went to New York to make my name. I left and went to Chicago to make my name. Even if I had gone to Los Angeles, you know, that would have been something. And I went for for college, but I came straight back. I was lucky enough to study with James Baldwin at University of Massachusetts Amherst. I was already married to the guy I met in the eighth grade. And we came directly back the day after graduation. And I was, I was thinking about this while I was, 
I was twisting these apricots because that's how you pick an apricot. You twist it to see if it's ready. And who taught me that? The first year I moved to that house was a woman from Syria. Her name was Selma, and she saw the apricot tree. And I was 27 years old, and she said, can I have some apricots? It would make me cry because I miss them from Syria. And then for 20 years, she brought me and my kids to Buli and homemade baklava, and they called her the apricot and fig lady. Wow. And so I thought, she's the person who taught me to twist the apricots. I've been here my whole life. I think it's just as valuable in America to be the person that stays home. And you know what I did? I went and cut all these books out about regional fiction for written by amazing writers who stayed home. People like Toni Morrison didn't stay home. She moved to New York, but she always writes about Lorraine, Ohio. Ernest J. Gaines left and went to San Francisco, but now lives back on the exact plantation where his ancestors lived wow. in uh, Point Coupe, uh, Louisiana. I was looking at Winesburg, Ohio by uh -huh. Sherwood Anderson and thinking about how he made his hometown into this fictional place. Joyce Carol Oates, who's a dear friend of mine, always writes about this place in upstate New York. She grew up in Lockport, New York. Yeah. And we always talk about the plants that she saw as a child in the summer versus the plants that I saw. So I'm, I'm always fascinated with how American regionalism and literature, as well as painting and photography and music, to me, those are the most valuable. Like Bush, Bushwick Bill just died of the Ghetto Boys. He was from Jamaica, but he really did Houston rock, right? Like yeah. that's what yeah. he did. And like think about how Eazy-E and NWA, that was the sound of Los Angeles for people like you and me. I just find regionalism the most exciting thing about being an American. That is so cool. And I love the fact that you referenced Bushwick, Bushwick Bill. Um, Ghetto voice. And I know. So tell me about in the country of women. I think I want to start by asking um, what led you to write this particular uh, memoir? This is my 11th book. And I've always written fiction. I've yes. written eight novels. Uh, for adults, and then one, um, what they call a, a first grade reader, and a children's picture book. And I love fiction. Fiction is my is my my dear friend of of my dreams. Yes. But what happened is that all of the people around me started dying, and that is the other half of what I just said. Is it's lovely to have lived in the same place your whole life, but when you have a huge community like I do then you, of course, experience loss. You would not experience loss if you moved away and you didn't ever meet anybody, which is how I think many of us are told that we have to be artists. Huh. So for my whole life, I've been balancing what is it like to spend the whole day taking care of someone and not be able to write. But at this time in my life, there were older people that I had admired and respected who I thank in this book for telling me all those stories uh, I, I met my mother-in-law when I was 15 years old and my father-in-law, and their stories and our family stories have been the basis and foundation for almost everything I've written. And my mother-in-law died very young. I was pregnant with Rosette, my third kid, who is 23. My father-in-law died three weeks before he could have voted for um, Barack Obama. But now we're also losing younger people to gun violence. So this book came because older relatives were passing away, the aunts and uncles who were in their 80s who had told me stories about 
fine, and a woman who had been born just after um, the Civil War ended and whose mother had been enslaved. And then younger people were dying, like Lorraine Simmons, who is a, a, a cousin to my my children. Lorraine Simmons was a freshman at Poly and was killed in his driveway. And he is the grandson and great-grandson of my mother-in-law's side of the family. So what I started thinking about was, wait a minute, how did all these women end up in this part of Southern California, Los Angeles and Riverside? Yeah. And why do we never talk about the Homeric, heroic journeys of women? You have Joseph Campbell, you know, the myth of the hero. Right. You have the hero's journey. No one ever talks about the women. And for for three years, that's all I did was wander around and think about how did Fine, she was the original woman, she was born in 1869, and her mother died when she was five. She was given away with her other five siblings. They were each given away by the former plantation owner to white families in the area. Wow. She was not enslaved, and she was not free. And she never saw her siblings again. She never saw anyone in her family again. And she is the woman who journeyed from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, all the way down to Denton, Texas, then to Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had her first child at the age of 13 while she was living in a migrant labor camp, having run away from the abusive family. She ended up with more than 150 descendants, many of who live in California now. Wow. So to trace wow. that was this very strange mixture of true narrative and then the ideas of the stories women told me in the driveway or in the house with the lights off or at Fairmont Park when the sun goes down. The other women in my family told me the legends of Fine and her daughters Jenny and Callie. So I'm just curious, when you began to research, did you begin to research intending to write a memoir or did you begin to research intending to write a fictional piece? No, this time I wanted to write a memoir because fiction would not have honored them with their real names and their real stories. And what's fascinating about that is that to write this book, I also went back to write my part, of course. And so I asked my mother and my step-grandmother, and they had never been willing to talk about anything. They also had lives of great deprivation, and they were immigrants. I'm the first generation in my family to have graduated from high school. My real father and my mother, neither of them was able to graduate from high school. And so what I wanted to do with my side was to go back and ask my father and my mother, and neither of them had ever been willing to talk about their childhoods because they were filled with sadness and despair and deprivation. And only when they be only when they passed eighty, were they willing to throw out like these odd stories. And I described them in the book. It's wow. it's crazy. It was as if someone shot T-shirts out of a cannon, and I had to catch them and then read this very cryptic language on the T-shirt. But I had no context for it. And then a week later, somebody would shoot me another T-shirt, and it would have another part of the story. But they were both so sad that they couldn't sit there and tell me the whole story. So my mom's mom died when she was nine. Fine's mother died when she was five. They're, they're just, the similarities wow. were astonishing. Yeah. You mentioned uh, high school, um, and you mentioned being the first uh, to graduate high school. 
how has education, what role has education played in your career? I know, I know that's, a, that's a loaded question. But it is not what? at all a loaded question because I've been teaching here for so long, but when I stand in front of my class every single time, what I say is, how many of you are the first people in your family to graduate from high school? And when I raise my hand as a distinguished professor of creative writing, they are astonished. They are stunned, and they're like, but how can that be? And I say, my mom didn't have a green, she, she had a green card only when she was pregnant with me. She wasn't a citizen yet. And then they're even more astonished, and it's really funny. Several times people have said, I thought you were white. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I am pretty white, but my mother was an immigrant, and we all laugh about that. When I ask them the next question, it's how many of you are the first in your family to go to college? Yeah. And we all raise our hands at the same times. The entire room is transformed. And from then on, we talk about things possibly in a different way than many other professors can because they feel willing to say to me, what was this book that you read? And why haven't I been given that book? And what do you think about this book? And I'm going to meet with a student today um, for one last time. I've known her for four years. And she's working on a project about uh, a girl who's seven and her mom is taken away um, by immigration and customs enforcement. And this is a fictional um, thing she's writing. But again, I feel as if people are willing to write certain things for me because they know I am writing those same stories. Wow. Wow. You mentioned, um, you know, being in this space, being a, being a professor, being a distinguished professor. Uh, what have you learned about success, however you define that, from others? And how do you use those lessons in everything that you do? James Baldwin was was so kind to me and my um, husband. We were very young. I was 22. He was 23. And we showed up at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And it was a very racist time, 1983. And we had a very difficult time in Amherst. Uh, there were professors who tried to fail me because they had seen me walking across campus with a tall black man. And when I turned in papers, they accused me of plagiarism. And they asked me why the last piece of paper was a different color from the previous 14. And I would say, well, I had to find this piece of paper in a folder. <laughs> because my husband works at a jail and he works graveyard shift and I didn't have a car to buy new paper. And this person tried to give me a failing grade and said, I've seen you with a tall black man and this isn't Santa Barbara, California. And I wanted to say, well, yeah, cause that's not where we're from, we're from <laughs> Riverside. But instead, I just didn't talk to any of them at all. And then James Baldwin uh, took me under his wing and told me you must write these stories of your home. And he came over to our house for dinner one night and uh, we were we made lasagna and Dwayne still had to work night shift that night. So we had an early dinner and James Baldwin was walking around our little apartment, married student housing, and he said it reminded him of the ghetto in Harlem because <laughs> it was a tiny little place with gray linoleum. And I had a boom box sitting on the windowsill and I had my little typewriter that my mom gave me for high school graduation and it was on a card table that we had found outside. And he said, what is, what is this playing? And I had a little piece of paper, and it was George Clinton, Aqua Boogie. And it said, with the rhythm it takes to dance to what we have to live through, you can dance underwater and not get wet. And he said, that's the most profound thing I've read in, in months. Wow. And so Dwayne said, should we play the song for him? So we did. And of course, we played Aqua Boogie. And that, that was just this 
amazing moment where we were of a different generation than he was. And he said, it is imperative that you write about this life that you all have led. And look, I was 22 then and I wasn't able to do it until now. But what he taught me about success were two really specific things. In terms of writing, he taught me, and this is, was a foundational thing that I bring up in this memoir, secondary characters are the most important things in the world. It's not the main character in, in a story, but the secondary characters and the way they function in a story is how the beauty of the narrative gets, gets stitched together. Wow. And that's true of everything in our lives. The people that we don't think are important are the most important. The people that we meet in a glancing way or the people that we could help or stop and talk to or the student or the cousin or the nephew or my own children, who is going to use them in this way as beautiful secondary characters in their own narrative, which means you have to, to love and take care of them. He taught me that about success. The second thing is something that I just was talking to my, my middle daughter, Delphine, about last week. We were talking about contentment. Because so many people ask me, well, how can you still be happy living in the same place and seeing the same people? And, you know, I say that for me, success is the contentment and the love and the knowledge of having this wide range of people. But it comes with a price because every day I drive up Martin Luther King Boulevard to get here and I pass four places where people in our family have died on that street. My brother passed away on 14th Street, uh, our nephew Corion, our nephew BJ, and the gas station where I get gas every week on 14th Street is a place where a woman whom I'd met one time, she worked there, was robbed and beheaded in that little building. And every single day when I go get gas or when I pass by that building, every single day, I remember this woman who was working at night because I worked at the mobile gas station up on university in the same small kind of cube of yeah. a building. And so part of what I think success is is holding together all these memories and stories and narratives as the person that we can be, whether you tell that story to somebody sitting as my cousins and I still sit on Park Avenue in the dark and talk about Fine and yeah. Jenny, or whether you write them down. I think that success is equal. Now, let's get into the creator's state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about, a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator's state of mind. This is also a difficult question. I have been inspired for these last three years that I've been working on this book by all of the stories that all of the women I meet, I, I can meet a woman on the Metrolink, or I can meet a woman at the bank, I can meet a woman at the grocery store, and that woman might tell me about how her grandmother ended up in California, having come from rural Mexico, or how her grandmother might have come here from Cambodia how my grandmother came here from Switzerland, how Fine and Callie ended up here on that circuitous route. Something I've been astonished by is how many times we end up talking about sexual violence or gun violence as the reason that that woman might have left her home and made a, a new home. And I've just, I've been inspired to think about the strength of women, how 
most of the time our particular strengths are not celebrated. I mean, we are the ones who, even though people don't think this anymore, these are the women who did the laundry and kept the children alive. Yeah, yeah. And I went to Sicily um, last last November. I was in Sicily um, at a writing conference, and I was there for ten days, and I had never been to a place like that. And the the ocean was astonishing and as of, of course I walk on the beach I meet people from Sicily who are telling me exactly the same stories I meet men and women who are from Sudan or from Nigeria and we talk about these journeys this is just all over the world but what strikes me every time is someone stays home and someone leaves and that cleaving between leaving and and staying home that cleaving is where I find this this essential like awe to be willing to leave or to be willing to stay home in between there is loss and love it is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect at the end of each interview we like to ask our guests this in hindsight what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out when I was starting out as a writer when I was working on on those stories I had written six stories before I met James Baldwin, and he told me that great thing about secondary characters, and um, and then we came home immediately, and I got a job teaching at um, Inland Empire Job Corps, so I taught recent refugees from Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. I taught former gang members from L.A. Uh, I had some of the earliest Crips in my class. Hmm. I had young women in that class. I taught GED. So my job was to um, teach all five units of the GED and and make sure students could pass. And they were learning a trade at the same time, like tile setting or clerical work or electronic assembly. I had young women in that in that class who were 18 and already had two kids. And I was writing my own fiction too. I wrote at night in a closet while Dwayne was working night shift. I wrote on this trunk that his grandmother had brought with her from Mississippi, Daisy, his maternal grandmother. What I wish I had had, I wish I had had someone that said, these are valuable stories, and you can write them and send them to the New Yorker or to the Atlantic. But it took me seven years to send things out because I was in such an isolated place, and I wrote these stories, and I didn't think anyone would want to hear about my people. And then... I kept thinking about James Baldwin. He he had not passed away yet. I also I reread something that Ernest J. Gaines had written, and he said that he he went to the library in Vallejo, California, and he read all the Russian, the famous Russian writers, and he said, but my people were not on the shelves, hmm. and so I wrote because I I didn't see my people on the library shelves. So I was quite obsessive back then, and I I went to the library all the time, the Riverside Public Library, where I had learned to read when I was three. And I, I read obsessively in order to make myself feel as if my stories were valuable enough to send out. But it took seven years. And I did not live in a place like New York or Los Angeles where people were praising me and asking me to write stories. Instead, I lived in a place where you know, people did not um, think writing was necessarily a valuable thing to do. And I, I wish I had had that confidence earlier. This is it's so great um, to sit down with you and have this conversation. Um, and I appreciate your time so much in like just, you know, um, doing this. But also, uh, 
you know, I really appreciate what you are in this community, in this space, um, for, you know, for those who have, who have gone on and for those who are coming after us and after you uh, who are going to have a means of looking and saying, okay, this is, this is what was done. This, is, this was done by whom, uh, by, by this person or that person. And, you know, yeah. it's there. This, this, uh, there's a photograph in this, in this memoir that Douglas McCullough uh, rescued. I found this in a, a box that my sister-in-law had, and it's a tiny little fragment. It's maybe three inches long, and yeah. it's triangular, and it was in a baggie, you know, a Ziploc baggie, uh-huh. and there was a piece of cardboard behind it to, so that it would, so my father-in-law clearly wanted to keep this little shard of a photograph. Wow. And this was my template as I worked on this book, and it kind of embodies everything we talked about because this is my mother-in-law, Alberta Sims, and her sister, Rosie. Uh, Rosie still lives uh, down the street. She lives off of Victoria, but she's the only one of the four sisters who's still alive. My mother-in-law looks as beautiful as a Supreme. She looks like she could be in the Supremes in this photo. And my mother-in-law never had a birth certificate Wow! because her mother, Daisy Carter, had had traveled her own uh, long, long circuitous route. She started in Sunflower County, Mississippi, went to Arkansas, Oklahoma, San Antonio, Texas, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and then Calexico, California. And when she arrived in Calexico, she already had four daughters, but she didn't have birth certificates for any of her daughters. Later, when Alberta wanted to go to Germany to visit her daughter, who was married to the boxing, heavyweight boxing champ of the U.S. military, George Brown, our congressman, got my mother-in-law a birth certificate, and it said she was born in Calexico. So as you asked earlier about the research, yes. I was able to go back and look at all the census records for Riverside, and I found the place where Daisy Carter had reinvented herself on wow. Howard Avenue and Denton Avenue in Riverside's east side. And it was Daisy and her aunt who had raised her after her mother was killed. Wow. All of these women lost their mothers at ages five, six, and nine. She had her four daughters, and Alberta's birth, birthplace is listed as California. So I look at my mother-in-law, and wherever she was born, because it's truly a mystery still, she w- arrived here when she was three, and she lived on Denton and then on Howard, she went to Irving Elementary School on, on 14th Street. She then lived in a house on Kansas and 11th. She married the day after she graduated from Riverside Poly High School. She married General Roscoe Conklin Sims II, and she lived on the corner of Michael Street and 12th Street, I mean in that area, and that is where she passed away. So what I like to think of is this woman who taught me so much of how I live my life now, how to cook, how to be a good mom, how to be gener- how to cook for a hundred, how to be generous. She bought me my first cocktail ring. <laughs> she gave me a cocktail dress. I didn't know what a cocktail was. She had a running charge, by the way, at Harris's, and when she died, it had $3,500, and the owner of Harris's said, I would never, ever expect the Sims family to pay that back because Alberta was amazing. Wow, wow. When she died, she had lived in this five-mile radius. Wow. For her whole life, and yet to me, that's a heroic existence 
So it's fascinating to think that I spent 30 years listening to the stories, but how do you put them together? You know, yeah. that, and it was this photograph that was my, I, I kept it by my, my desk and I would look at it and say, help me do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> There's one little thing I could say that I think you guys would find fascinating. Yes. To write about six generations of women and they're coming all the way from Switzerland, from Canada, from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, from Sunflower County, Mississippi, and they're all making these thousands and thousands of miles journeys to Southern California. I was completely overwhelmed with how to write this many women and this many stories. And really this book is addressed to my three daughters who are of mixed race. They are Cherokee and in, in formerly enslaved people who could have been from Ethiopia or Haiti. They're French, they're Swiss. And then of course there's the mystery of Alberta's father. The two books that I really used as sort of in creating us a, a, a kind of how would you do this are Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, which mm. was one of our family's favorite memoirs. I've bought at least eight copies and given them out to everyone. I bought them for my daughter for Christmas, and now we've all read it, including um, Dwayne and as well as my new son-in-law, Kumi, who's from Nigeria. Trevor Noah's book is about his mother, really, but what he talks about is what was it like to be a person of mixed race in South Africa. And this book is about people of mixed race. As each person married someone else, people were indigenous, mixed with African, mixed with French, mixed with Swiss. Trevor Noah's book began, each section began with a crazy recitation of the law that made it impossible for mixed race kids to go to school, for black women to do certain things, for mixed race women to do certain things. And I found it fascinating to look at American history. So I have a chapter in here about how racial designations were America's obsession for all those years, how census documents could not handle racial mixtures. And the other book that was a wonderful template and and something that I, I really, I've read six times now is Deborah Miranda. Her book is called Bad Indians. And we were talking earlier about the fourth grade, all California uh, fourth graders have to take this module where they have to make a mission. Deborah Miranda is um, Gabrielino, SLN, and Tongva, and Jewish. And her book is about the genocide of her ancestors during the mission period. And what she does is break down the geography of California, mm, how the yeah. history is romanticized, but also, again, it's about women. How did women survive? genocide and who were her ancestors those two books i can't say enough about they were the books that i kept with me along with this picture of my mother-in-law to sort of say how do you structure a book so i ended up putting a chapter in here called nine and it just came to me after i read both of these these yes. memoirs yeah. what what happened to my mother when she was nine is that her mother died what happened to fine when she was nine is that she found a bullet in Tennessee, and she tried to throw it at the head of the older white woman who beat her every day while she was chopping wood. And what happened to me when I was nine is that the bookmobile came to the parking lot off Blaine Street, and I was able to walk there and find books. And then I ended up writing about my own daughter, Delphine, when she was nine, and we went to France. And she became obsessed with cicadas and with bugs and decided she wanted to be an entomologist. So I, I thought about what it means to be an American nine-year-old and what it means to sort of look at how six generations of life 
has changed. And it ends really with my dreams for, for my own kids. And as mixed-race women, um, what will be their their future in America? Well, well listen, this has been uh, such a pleasure. It's Thank you. It's been really, really cool to just sit across from you and have this conversation. Tune in for our next episode when we talk with entrepreneur Eugene Kang about how a stop for road trip snacks led him to become the co-founder and CEO of Country Archer Jerky Company, one of the fastest growing private companies in the United States. Thanks for listening. Find more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. Do you know someone creating something great? Send us what you're creating for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. Write to us at podcast at ucr.edu. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you are there, leave us a review. Our producer for this show is Jennifer Merritt, with audio and editing by Chan Moon and Kevin Williams. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail and Madeline Adamo. Designed by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director Luis Sands. Special thanks to Christy Zwicky and Jessica Weber. This show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekurby Hines. Thanks for joining us in the creator state.